Are we supposed to get married? I'm gonna just swipe left. I just want somebody to share my life. Look at the brainwave patterns of people falling in love and people on cocaine, and it was very, very similar. You can keep waiting for the fairy tale, or you can get on board with the new rules of relationships. If you watch me on the Drew Barrymore Show, then you know this ain't your mama's love advice. This is Dates and Mates with Demona Hoffman. Hello, lovers. Welcome to another thrilling episode of Dates and Mates. In case you've been living under a rock, today is Valentine's Day. And whether you are single, coupled, or thruppled, check out my Instagram if you need a little explainer on that. We are celebrating love today. That's right. Things are about to get steamy. On the show, I'm always talking about the first two pillars of the four pillars of long-term compatibility common goals and shared values. But we're switching it up today because it's Valentine's Day. So we're going to talk about the other two, trust and communication. And whether you realize it or not, sex and intimacy can be gateways to unlocking these last two pillars. Do I have your attention now? (laughs) Well, I'll really have your attention a little later in the show when my dear friend, Doctor of Human Sexuality, Emily Morris of the Sex with Emily podcast is here with me for this very special Valentine's Day episode. She will be talking about her new book, Smart Sex, how to boost your sex IQ and your own pleasure. Before you're like, mm, Demona, sounds a little too spicy for me. I want you to know that this episode is for all of my listeners because boosting your sex IQ will help you if you have a Valentine tonight or not. By the way, speaking of Valentine's Day, I just want to send a big hug to all of my single listeners. I remember, for me, how hard this day was when I was unpartnered, and it felt like everyone had a date but me. But I just want to remind you that we put so much emphasis on Valentine's Day, and in the end, it's just a day. And you can choose to recognize it or not the way you wish. Maybe this is the perfect Valentine's Day with friends. Maybe it's a solo self-care day. Or maybe it's just a day. Either way, I want each and every one of you to be intentional about love. So let's make Valentine's Day our reminder of that, regardless of our relationship status. And don't forget, baby, I love you, and I do the show for you. I just want to also welcome all of our new listeners. I'm going to show you how we do here at Dates and Mates. First, we serve up the dish. Our headline today is, Do You Code Switch on Dating Apps? Mm. And then later, in a very special, very sexy Dear Demona, Emily Morse will be with me to answer questions like, I find that my matches often fetishize me. Please help. And I met a girl that I'm really attracted to, but she's a bad kisser. What can I do? And to supersize it for you today, we'll be doing a third question. Would it be bad to tell my partner that I love her for the first time during sex? All right, grab your candy hearts and sit tight because it is time to dish. Dee's Dating Dish. This New York Times headline caught my eye. It says, love you on Tinder, on Hinge, not so much. This article was a deep dive into how people present different variations of themselves and act differently across various dating apps. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And full disclosure for those who are new to the show, I am the official dating coach of the OkCupid app. I have created content and collaborated with basically every app out there, Match, Bumble, Coffee Meets Bagel, Hinge, JDate, Black People Meet. Yes, I'm Black and Jewish. (laughs) So I got all the niche apps at my fingertips. And my husband of 15 years and I met online. So all this to say, 
I am bullish on dating apps. And all this to also say, I'm a fan of authenticity. And there were some things about this article that were right on for me and other things that I think you all need to be on the lookout for. So here is where the New York Times begins. The article starts with an anecdote from someone named Morgan. She says she matched with someone on Hinge whose profile checked a lot of boxes. Interesting, gentlemanly, a little older than her. I'm going to take issue with the boxes, obviously, because, you know, I don't date based on boxes. But I digress. That's not what the article is about. But then she realized that she had seen this guy on Tinder before. But his Tinder profile seemed a lot more aggressive. And they started chatting on Tinder, and the convo got pretty sexual immediately. But it wasn't that way when she was talking to him on Hinge. And what this article exposed is that with so many dating apps available, a lot of users modulate their personalities from one platform to the next. So, you know, with Hinge, it encourages leading with details that suggest you're serious about finding a relationship. They rebranded a few years ago as the relationship app. They didn't want to be known as a dating app. They wanted you to find a relationship there. And that's why there you have to cue off of a specific thing in the profile. But then there are apps like Field that are for the ENM, ethical non-monogamy community, and people who want open relationships for swingers. And if you want all that, then you got to be putting your kinkiest foot forward on that app. But Even Morgan, the woman who was interviewed in the story, said that she has different photos that she uses on different apps. So on Tinder, she uses pictures of her out at bars, drinking and partying. On Hinge, it's pictures of her at brunch, usually in a nice dressed up outfit. And what this article proposes is that the likelihood of a match, meaning a relationship, a situationship, something unfolding, it's affected by which app a potential partner discovers you on first. And those of you who are out here on the apps have seen that a lot of times you do see the same people from app to app. And a lot of times it's the same photos again and again and again, but a lot of times it's not. The New York Times says it can be a smart move to switch up your profile to increase your chances of a match, but there's a fine line between simply presenting different versions of yourself and straight up lying. And Morgan herself who we began the story with, she says that she does code switch as well, which I had never really thought of code switching in this context of code switching dating apps. But it is a brilliantly accurate portrayal of what's going on. She says that her profiles are two sides to the same coin. So here's my big takeaway from reading this article, which really is fascinating. We're going to link to it in the show notes as we always do but it's definitely worth a read. I would say as a dating coach of 15 years, it is a good idea to have at least a different primary photo on the various apps. But in this article, it talks about people, you know, having like whole folders of apps on their phone. I would be remiss if I didn't say that we are on too many apps right now folks. (laughs) I have my clients really focus on one app at a time or kind of cycle in two apps. But if you have an entire folder of apps on your phone, it's no wonder that you are frustrated with dating apps because we miss things. We move too quickly. We aren't doing it intentionally. And a lot of times then when we're talking about profiles and even it's alluded to in this article, We get lazy. And look, you're busy. I'm busy. I get it. I get it. 
you don't have time to create and curate a different profile for every single app. So you do the cut and paste thing. And in the article, they allude to the fact that this is this is a time consuming thing to create a different identity on each different app. So guess what you get to do? You get to choose to do it or not do it. That's what I love about dating today. You have so much choice at your fingertips that we didn't have even 10 years ago before Tinder hit the scene or longer when my husband and I met online or longer before online dating was even a thing. So now we have choice and you get to choose how you want to show up. And I'm not a fan of the set it and forget it profiles. People will tell me, oh, online dating isn't working for me, but they've got six apps on their phone. They haven't updated them since 2018. And they're using the same old photos and the same old bio. And they're not being intentional. They're not being active on the apps. And then they're being depressed in the algorithm and saying, woe is me. But you're listening to Dates and Mates. So you're not going to do that. What you're going to do is date with intention. So if you're one of those people that has all of those apps, scale it back and and really be strategic. And when you're matching and sending messages, you also have to remember that the other person on the other end is having a whole different experience of the app. So the article says somebody was left on red on one app, but on the next app, the person was like, I need to meet you right away. You're amazing. Where have you been? (laughs) So, you know, and sometimes you might be chatting with the same people and not even realizing it. But I, I want you to not take these conversations that are happening online so seriously. This is why I really drive my clients and listeners to move off of the app within the first week, because then you can see what you're really dealing with. But if you're just dealing with names in a phone, people can create all kinds of identities. You start to conjure up an image in your mind of who this person is, and when that person might not even exist. But you also have to remember that when you land in their inbox, you match with them and you send them a message, the way they read it and where they read it may impact whether or not you end up meeting or what you read to be their enthusiasm or lack thereof for connecting at all. And this is because, as Nick Vile from The Bachelor said on the show a few months ago, he said this about texting, that when we text someone, they read the text not with the intention that we wrote it, but with the intention and the emotion that they are reading it in at that moment. And I just want to connect that to what is happening online on your apps as well. When you send someone a message, they might be on a date, They might have just broken up with somebody. They might be at work. They might be at their mom's house. They might just be in a crap mood. They're stuck in traffic. They're waiting at the doctor's office. They're reading your message in that emotional state. And a lot of times things just get buried because we may be on the go and we may not think of the importance of that message at that moment. So let's try not to put so much weight into that initial interaction because people will say, I matched with somebody. It seemed really enthusiastic at the beginning. We were messaging back and forth and then it died out. Or we matched and we had also matched on Tinder. And then I, they left me on red on Tinder, but then they were really aggressive on Hinge. 
And what does that mean? It just means that something about your profile on this one app hit them at the right time in the right way, and the other time they didn't. But you are in control. Remember, I'm bringing this back. I'm bringing it back home now, folks. You're in control of your dating destiny. So if you want to keep the conversation going, if you want to initiate, you get to write the rules. You can be more deliberate and you can control the gameplay a little bit more. So while I'm a fan of having a dating profile that aligns with the tone and goal of the app, I just want you to remember you're the curator of the museum of your life online. When you choose photos, you are telling a story and you may tell your story differently, but at the core, they must always be you. You must always be in alignment with who you are in the way that you message on the apps and you need to be in alignment and maybe maybe your profile is the best version of yourself or maybe it is a uh, a more outgoing or a flirtier version of yourself but at its core it needs to always be you because nothing is sexier than authenticity when we come back doctor of human sexuality emily morris will be here to talk about her new book smart sex how to boost your sex iq and your own pleasure students get your notebooks and gel pens ready because we are going to school with Emily Morris of Sex with Emily to boost your sex IQ in a moment. So now you know I am a fan of dating apps, but I want you to be a fan of dating apps too because they are a tool. They're a tremendous tool that's right there in your pocket to be able to bring us love and connection. And that's ultimately what we all want, whether it's Valentine's Day or another day. And the key to a successful online dating experience it all comes down to the profile. So if you're frustrated with the time wasters, the catfish, the code switchers, the ghosters, then let me help you out. Let me show you how to optimize your profile for the right matches for you. I have a free giveaway. It's called the Profile Starter Kit. And you can get it in your hot little hands just by going to datesandmates.com. Scroll down to the bottom where you will see a photo of the Profile Starter Kit. Click the button Put in your email and you'll get immediate access to a quick tutorial on how to pick the right dating profile photos. You'll get access to plug and play templates and you'll see intriguing prompts to help you write a winning bio. Dating apps work, but you got to make them work for you. And I will help you do that all for free at datesandmates.com. Welcome back. Doctor of Human Sexuality, Emily Morse, is on a mission to liberate the conversation about sex and pleasure. She is the best-selling author of Hot Sex, Over 200 Things You Can Try Tonight, exclamation point. <laughs> and she's the host of the number one sexuality podcast on Apple Podcasts, Sex with Emily. She has been profiled in the New York Times, Forbes, and the Times of London, she also has a class, and she has a new book coming out, Smart Sex, How to Boost Your Sex IQ and Your Own Pleasure. It comes out in June, but we get the exclusive, the sneak peek. So please give big smooches to my friend, Emily Morris. Hi, Demona. Good to see you again. You too. And on Valentine's Day, no less. This is so very exciting. Do you do like a big Valentine's Day shebang. Yeah, personally I do. I am in a relationship this year. I guess it's the second year I've been with my my partner and 
I am going to be doing something fun with my partner. We're always so busy that I we shift, so we celebrate on the weekend. So I love that you're saying that. <laughs> I want to give people permission too, because it's a midweek thing. It's okay to say, I'm going to let's do Valentine's Day when we have time this weekend rather than having to do it midweek. Yeah. Well, we put so much pressure on ourselves to to make these moments and to, you know, to have these memories. And really, like, Valentine's Day is just a day. <laughs> it's it's a great reminder if you haven't throughout the year been showing the love. It's like, okay, it's time to get it together. But, you know, I've been listening to your podcast forever. And you've been on Dates and Mates before. I've been on your show. But I really love how you help people clarify for themselves their own path. And I think that's something that really we really share mm-hmm. in common. And I'm so excited because I heard that you have a new book coming out this spring. I do. I have a book coming out June 13th, and it's called Smart Sex, How to Up-Level Your Sex IQ and Own Your Pleasure. And I'm very excited about it. I've been working really, really hard on this book to get everything into it. So people can take responsibility truly for their own pleasure, their sex life, answer their questions, and figure out how to have more pleasure and greater communication and connect with their partners and themselves. I love that. And we're going to dissect all of that in a second. But just let's back up for a second. You said sex IQ. Mm -hmm. Sexual intelligence. What is that? (laughs) Mm, exactly. Well, it's a new thing that I came up with when I was writing the book. I thought, you know, I was thinking about intelligence, right? We think about our IQ. And then, you know, it used to be that if you were really like smart, right, you had high test scores. And then we came up with EQ in the 90s, emotional intelligence in the 90s. And it was like, you have empathy, you have compassion. And then I was thinking this book, I'm like, I really want people to feel empowered to be sexually intelligent as well. And so I created these five pillars of sex IQ that people can think about when they want to know, when they want to answer any of their sex questions. So being sexually intelligent is more of a holistic approach to your, to understanding your own sex questions. So let me back into that for a minute. I've been doing this for almost 20 years. We've both been in this business a long time, Demona. And I realized that people come to me for a lot of the same questions. They want a quick fix. They're like, why can't I get turned on? Why am I no longer attracted to my partner? Why does my partner want more sex than I do? Why can't I have an orgasm? It's not a quick fix. It's not just about buying a vibrator, although that can help. It's not about just a really healthy conversation. It's a holistic approach. So in this book, I present the five pillars of becoming sexually intelligent. And then everyone can kind of walk through those pillars on their own. And here's the thing. You never get to a place where you check it off your list. You're not going to be like, all right, my score is at 98% and I can move on to something else. Now I'm going to learn another skill. It's something that we have to constantly monitor throughout our lifetimes because our sex drive and our sexual interests and all the things are going to change throughout, not only throughout our lifetime, sometimes throughout the month, right? Mm. If you're a woman, mm-hmm. throughout there are different cycles. And so it's just a way for people to, to monitor what's really going on in their bodies, with their mental health, their physical health, how well they communicate. There's a lot of factors that are contributing to our own sexual intelligence. Mm. What, what about these pillars? Can you, I know you're not going to give us all the juicy, juicy because everybody has to get the book for that. But I can give you some. I think the one pillar that's a, that I think, for example, is about your health. Okay. So people are often surprised to find out that their mental health and physical health are going to contribute to their sex life. Meaning 
Maybe they've been on the birth control pill or taking an antidepressant and they're thinking, I can't orgasm, Dr. Emily, what's going on with me? And it's like, well, are you on any of these medications that could be impacting their sex drive? Oh, I didn't know they were related. Or your mental health, if you're suffering from you know, a lot of anxiety or a lot of stress at work, that's going to impact your ability to be sexual. Another mm. one of the pillars is about collaboration. You might wonder why you can't perform in the bedroom, but how well have you been communicating with your partner? Have you guys talked about your sexual goals or what your turn-ons are lately? When was the last time you had a really healthy conversation with your partner about your sex life, right? So one of, that's one of the pillars too is about how well you're communicating with your partner. Because this way, if you look at all the pillars, you can think, you know, another one is about um, self-acceptance. Are you, are you accepting where you're at right now? Yes, your body might have changed now, oh, it did. It was a it few did. months ago, right? <laughs> maybe you just had a baby, or maybe you're 10 years older than you were, right? We all every day. Or maybe you had a older. baby eight years ago and exactly. you're still trying to get it back together. You know, things change. Exactly. Things change. <laughs> and have you accepted that? Because it's going to be really hard to show up and have a really the, the beautiful sex life that you want if you're still living in the past. Well, if only my body looked a little bit different or once I lose five pounds, then I'll be able to show up sexually. You know, the time is now. Like you, you want to have sex today. Like, are you accepting where you're at? I love, too, that you're taking this holistic approach of how it all works together. Because I do feel like in sex and in dating, we love to compartmentalize, don't we? <laughs> right. You know, and people will say to me, like, we have great sex and it's wild and it's passionate, but, like, we're not getting along very well or we don't have good communication or I don't really feel like I can trust them. I have, like, different pillars of long-term compatibility, you know? It's like, yeah. I feel like if you, ha if you don't have trust and you have great sex, are you actually having great sex? Right. Exactly. Right. What, you know, what, what does great sex look like to you? It's funny. That's how like my career started. I used to ask people, what does great sex mean to you? What does it look like? Right. And so I'd love to talk to those people. Like you haven't communicated. You actually basically can't stand each other, but the sex is great in the bedroom. I'd love to see what that great sex looks like. Right. Cause sex so much about sex is about connection and, and about, you know, authenticity and being real and being present. So yeah, I think we really get to unpack what that looks like in exactly from a holistic approach. Like if someone came to you and said like, you know, Demona, I can't find a partner, but I, I, I've done everything and, you know, or like I, I'm doing everything. You're like, but have you really done everything? Are you on the dating app? So I will never go on a dating app. You probably would say, well, you know, that's probably something you should look at. Or, you know, I haven't been in therapy, but I don't know why everyone's rejecting me. Girl, you just gave some listeners the read right now. They're like, oh, oh, oh okay. yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right. And th that's what I love about the work that you and I do. We really, you know, peer under the hood and we have we have to look at all of that stuff. And even exactly. as you're talking about these different pillars, I can see how they're connected to one another, mm -hmm. too. Because, for example, this is our busy season. I have been very busy. And my sex drive has been like, meh, like, mm -hmm. take it or leave it. <laughs> Yes. But I communicate that. So going back to the communication pillar as well, I communicate to my husband, I'm I'm at high stress for work right now, not a lot of time, not a lot of energy, and this is where we are. And we communicate about that and we have agreement as well. Mm -hmm. Because I, you know, I get a lot of questions on the podcast too of people that have different level sex drives. Mm -hmm. This person wants it all the time. This person is like like, I'll be honest with you, Emily, I'm a good, like, once, twice a week. Yeah. I got a lot of things to do. 
It's pretty typical, though. I relish normalcy. (laughs) Right. But it's all communication, right? And having agreement because your partner might have other needs. So what do you do in that situation? Mm. Like, okay, I'm really busy. I'm really stressed. I'm like, can't do it right now. And that's for a time. Like, that can't be forever. But that's for a time. But your partner maybe has a higher sex driver or higher need. How do you bridge those gaps? Mm. I, first off, I love what you're saying here because first, what a great example that what you do right in your relationship, I'll tell you if you, you want some accolades today, what I love that you just said, and I think so many people can learn from this, is that it's okay if you don't want sex the same as your partner. And I'm going to get into the whole things about it, but here's the right way to do it or the way I recommend is saying, you know what? It's going to be a crazy two weeks. Sex is not going to happen with the greatest frequency. But what I can tell you is two weeks from now, let's have a date night and let's have a night. We're going to get a babysitter and we're going to do all these things. And then that's when sex is going to happen. Because then you're, you're bringing your partner along. They're not feeling rejected. They're not feeling like you don't care. You're setting the expectation. So they're not feeling like every night they're thinking, is it going to happen tonight? Is it going to happen? You know, your husband knows, okay, you know, February 15th or February 28th is going to be back on. And so, so I'll check my schedule. Exactly. I can but, pencil you in. But honestly, though, it's so much better than what happens. Okay. So to answer your question, mismatch libidos. This is what we call it in the business or, you know, one person wants sex more often than the other. And what I want to say is, first off, that's probably one of the most common questions I get asked because in every single relationship, there is a high desire partner and a low desire partner. Eventually, maybe you started out and you were both high desire, but it kind of shakes out that typically someone wants it more than the other. Welcome to welcome to being in a relationship. It's common. But what do you do then? How do you handle it? Well, the low desire partner has all the power in the relationship. Because they're the ones who are deciding when the sex is going to happen. So it's really important for that, you know, for both partners, but for that partner in particular to say, okay, I'm realizing that right now my sex drive isn't where it once was. I realize that I haven't been working out as much. So I have less energy and, you know, whatever it is, we get to communicate with our partner why we're not having sex. And then we have to come up with a plan and say, you know, let's say your partner wants sex every day. And you're like, okay, well, I want sex once a week. Well, then there's a little bit of compromise in there. Maybe you say, okay, well, we're going to have sex twice a week, but I love to, to offer the idea of scheduling sex. That's one thing that couples with different desires can be is saying, Saturday night's going to be our night. It's going to be our non-negotiable date night. And on that night, we both know that we're going to have sex. And then the person who's a lower desire has time to plan ahead and think, well, what's going to get me really in the mood for sex? Because I'm going to back up here and say, even if you don't want sex, I hope everyone could agree that you understand that it's important, that it's the way that you connect Mm -hmm. and that intimacy is an important part of your relationship. So hopefully you'll do whatever you can to get yourself ready, at least for that one time a week or one and a half times a week. And then you think, okay, well, I really know that I need to have, make sure the house is clean. Um, I need to make sure that there's a babysitter or the kids are sleeping at a friend's house. I need to make sure that I've shaved or I've showered or I've worked out that day. And I think this is on us. This is where we're responsible for decoding and deconstructing where our arousal and our desire comes from. And so I've figured out the things that I need to get in the mood for sex. For example, like if I go to my boyfriend's house and it's cold, (laughs) it's freezing, he lives in a part of town, he just doesn't always have the heat. I'm like, there is no sex happening if I walk in your house and it's freezing and the sheets haven't been cleaned. Like we can look at all these factors, but if I walk in there and he smells good, he's maybe dinner and the fireplace is going and it's a warm environment, then my body can kind of relax into the moment 
and know that I'm going to be ready for sex, right? Maybe I wore something that makes, you know, some nights when I go over there that make me feel really sexy and in the mood. And so I try to deconstruct and put all the things in place that are going to make me want to be in the mood. Maybe I had a great conversation with my partner and I said, you know, I did a show this week. I got these new toys for us to try, which I often do. I'm like, I got this great new toy. We're going to try it on Saturday night. So then we both get to look forward to Saturday night. And again, going back to the high, let's just say for this case, my partner is a high desire. He's not trying to have sex with me on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday because he knows that we've planned for Saturday. So those are just some of the ways couples can hack it. That's so helpful, Emily. And also it actually dovetails with a lot of the dating philosophy that I have presented on the show where I say in the early phase of dating, you want to preserve that anticipation too. So people will tell me, mm. oh, we matched and it was really great. And we saw each other next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. And then they're like, two weeks later, oh, it kind of, it didn't go anywhere. It kind of fizzled out. People think it's not sexy when you're like, can we schedule it? I mean, Saturday, February 28th. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but right. I look at it as an opportunity, as you said, to build anticipation. And the same, like if you maybe you're listening to this podcast and you're you're single and you're like, I, I, I can't, I can't get it seven days a week. But if you also space out the interactions mm -hmm. with new partners, I feel like that really builds that anticipation and makes it so much more exciting when you do have sex. Absolutely. And I'm glad you said that because I forget that people are like, scheduling sex is not hot. <laughs> I don't want to look at my calendar <laughs> and say like, got to pick up the dry cleaning, got to pick up the kit and then even go have sex. But really it is about anticipation. It's about desire, right? We want mm. something to look forward to and the buildup and the and the teasing and the texting and the, the all the, like the foreplay. I always say like foreplay starts after the last orgasm or, you know, foreplay all day. Like what are the little things that we can do to build that arousal? to get us excited for the for, for sex happening. And you'd be amazed to see what this does once you get out of your own way and say like, you know, not, that's not hot or whatever. It's part of sex is all yeah. these things that are surrounding the sex. Yeah. And there was something else that you said that really struck a chord with me. You were talking about where our work begins. And I know your book is all about our, our own sexual IQ. But I love a little bit of, uh, I'd love just some guidance here on taking control of our own arousal mm. and, and really getting in touch with what we need to get in the mood. Because mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of folks are, are again, very compartmentalized mm -hmm. where we haven't actually done that self-study. Most people haven't. The sex is going to be hot in the beginning, I hope. I hope that, that there's the honeymoon phase. We call it the honeymoon for a, re a reason. Sex is amazing and you can't wait to rip each other's clothes off. And you don't really have to talk about sex because you have that built in. It's unknown. You've never touched this person in this way before. You've never kissed them before. And it's really, really exciting. But I'm going to tell everybody that what's going to happen eventually, if you see someone and you get into a relationship with someone, or even if you've had sex every day for a month, you're going to have to start thinking about, okay, what can I do to continue to be attracted to this person because we no longer are riding on the fumes of the newness? Because remember, they look at the brainwaves patterns of people falling in lust or falling in love and people on cocaine and it, the brainwave patterns are very, very similar. It is a drug and that drug, like everything that comes up, it's going to have to come down again. So that's where the work happens. And I've had to reverse engineer it as well. So, so just think about it. Everyone can take a moment and say like, the last time you had sex and it was really hot, 
what made it so hot? And then think about what was happening before that. Like that's the best way to crack the code. So here's some of the ways you can think about desire and arousal is, um, wow, my partner had this really great, com- we just got to see a movie and we had, we went to dinner after and we were this really great conversation about the film. And my partner was just so, the way he was talking about it, the way she was sharing it, like I was just, this heated conversation was passionate and I love going into the arts and talking about things together. So maybe it's conversation. Maybe you know that like you really need to have a hot conversation with your partner. Or maybe it was a time you had a really great workout with your partner. You went on a hike. And that after that hike, your adrenaline was going, you were sharing something in nature with your partner. And like that day, you couldn't wait to rip each other's clothes off and you had really great sex. So maybe it was something physical. I'm a sapiosexual, so. Sapiosexuals, right? Oh my gosh. My husband was telling me something the (laughs) other day and I was like, I don't even know what he's talking about, but this is so hot because I cannot even follow. This man is so brilliant. (laughs) Exactly. I'm the same way. I'm a sapiosexual. And when I see him on the business call or he's like on his Excel spreadsheet, something that I cannot stand, but he's got these three, he's got three monitors up of all his Excel programs. He's building up some spreadsheets. I'm like, that's really freaking hot. He's in his domain. He's confident. So, right. And like I said, there's little things in the environment. I'd rather be at his house than my house. I'd rather be in a hotel room, right? We all love hotel sex. Well, what is it about hotel sex that makes it hot? Well, I'm not in my house staring at the same pile of laundry and the same ceiling. You know, I want to get out of my space. And we can't always have hotel sex, but can we like somehow crack maybe sex in the living room or you need to change of location? So it's really getting curious. And if you don't have the answer to these questions, well, then maybe when you do have sex next time, like think about it. What would have made this better? What wasn't working for me? Because this is part of the work. This is part about becoming sexually intelligent is self-knowledge. That's another one of the pillars. How well do I know myself? How well do I know in the past what worked for me and what didn't? How well do I know what's going to be a requirement for me to be turned on? And I'm telling you, most people don't know this. And the book will walk people through how to step-by-step how to understand. So then they know, and then they can describe that to a partner. And the world I live in, Demona, I would love this to be on dating apps. People like, I went on a date with someone, they were great, but you know what? They weren't that sexually intelligent. Like I want this to become part of the lexicon. Yeah. Like they didn't seem like they really had, a, you know, knew themselves sexually. Because a lot of times people get in relationships and then they realize we are not compatible. Like I wanted to save people a lot of headaches in life. So you can find out, does your partner have a growth mindset around sex? Are they willing to talk about sex? Do they have they worked on their shame around sex or their trauma around sex? It's really hard to have incredible sex. I talk a lot about that in the book too, about the pleasure thieves, the things that are keeping us from our sexual intelligence. Mm. Emily, I cannot wait <laughs> to get my hands on this book because this is this is gold. And you've been doing this so long. You've been a leader in this field for so long. I am just honored that you came by to share. We, we got like the exclusive kind of. You're the first person I am talked to about it really. So thank you thank everyone you. for riding this along with me. And, and thank you Demona for having me on. It's such a special day. It is a special day. You know what? It's such a special day, Emily. If you have time, <laughs> we have questions from listeners. Can you stick around for a couple minutes? Yeah, let's do it. I love it. All right. Let's do it. We will put a link in the show notes to your book, but stick around because Emily will be with me to answer your questions. Your questions are in, and Emily and I are here to help with a very special, supersized Dear Demona. Dear Demona. Demona, help me. I'm here with Dr. Emily Morse, doctor of 
Human Sexuality, Emily Morse. She is on a mission to liberate the conversation about sex and pleasure. And we have so many questions that we get on the show about <laughs> sex and about intimacy. So I saved some juicy ones just Ooh. for you. All right. This one comes to us from a listener named Sabrina. She says, I have never been in an adult romantic relationship, and I'm currently in my mid-30s. When I'm out, I don't meet a lot of men, or the men I meet platonically are in relationships. Online dating is not proven successful, and I rarely get matches. Men either fetishize over the fact that I'm a black woman, or my weight, I'm plus size. If I do have a match that does neither one of those things, we don't usually talk for long, because they take forever to meet up or just want to have sex and don't fit in with my values. My faith is a big part of my life. I would love to start dating and find companionship. Please mm. help. Emily, I picked this question specifically because I hear this a lot from people about this fear of fetishization. That is like, mm -hmm. say that one five times fast. <laughs> I imagine that on Sex with Emily, you get questions about mm -hmm. this as well. And I do. Can you set me straight, first of all, on my understanding is that a fetish is something that you cannot get aroused without the presence of this thing. Is that correct? Yes, that is true. So the, people often conflate fantasy and fetish. So a fantasy is something that you fantasize about or that you really would love to happen in your sex life. And you're okay if it doesn't happen. Like, I'd love to have a threesome every time I have sex, but <laughs> it doesn't happen. But I love to fantasize about it because it gets me really turned on. A fetish is essentially a requirement for arousal. Like, you cannot get turned on unless your partner is wearing latex. Or you can't get turned on unless there's a threesome happening, really. Or I'm fantasizing about, or I'm talking about a threesome. That's another uh, top fan, uh, fetish. So you actually can have a fetish for a, a threesome as well. So um, yeah, that's the thing. It's a requirement for arousal. I do hear this a lot. And I, and I wonder how much we should be front-loading that in our dating process. Because I imagine, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I feel like Sabrina is carrying. She's carrying the fear as a black woman that she is going to be, let's call it objectified instead of fetishized, right? She's going to be objectified for that, for her weight, for maybe the fact that she hasn't had a romantic relationship before. And there are people that will also mm. pursue that. And that's a lot for her to carry into her mid-30s. Then with the expectations also from faith that may not be in alignment with the people that she meets, that's a lot. It's a lot to unpack. So first I want to say she could be objectified by many people and she might find people that, that are not sharing her faith and like those are all real, real concerns. But I would also say like, I think a lot of us have things like that. We're like, oh, I'm too, I'm too old or people aren't going to find me or I don't have enough experience sexually or I don't, I think that we all have those, those things that we put out there. And so I would encourage her to do is, is to find people that she connects with in a in a heart space. Like I think that we we know ourselves better than we think, and we all have really great instincts if we choose to pay attention to them. We know what's right for us, and a lot of times we override it. So I think that if she's got a sense for somebody that they're really not going to be the right person, then, then trust that. But I also say, like, I'm thinking about the faith-based thing. And I'm wondering, like, where Sabrina goes. Is she a part of a religious organization? Is she Does she go to their meetups? You know, do they have, like, Sunday services or barbecues or something that she could be a part of? Because to me, the faith would be the part of it that I would lean into. Because mm -hmm. I think if she finds people that share her faith, 
and that they had these common interests, then that would be a great place to start. I would kind of try to lean into that part of her life. And I think that we forget that. Like, I know you talk about this all the time, but sometimes things are right in front of us. You know, certain, you know, a meetup or something that the the organizations are doing that she might say, oh, that's not really my thing. Well, that's where she's going to find more like-minded people that she connects with. And once she just finds a few people she connects with, and again, I want to say, it's so easy for her to say, well, I've never had a relationship and all these things. But I think if she just says, who do I want to connect with? Who would I want to have lunch with? Or who would I want to go do something fun with? And take it out of her head that it has to be the, that the next person's going to be her, her lover. I would start to find, start to build intimacy in ways of just, it doesn't have to mean sexual, but like a real connection with somewhere that she feels safe with and that she could trust and then see where it goes from there. And I would start to build that with several people. Like once you surround yourself with the right kind of people or the good people that make you feel good, they're going to bring in their friends and you're going to start meeting more people where I think that some of these fears will melt away. I love you, Emily. Like I (laughs) literally, that was where I was going to go. And then you just took the words out of my mouth. So I can't make it better. The only thing I could (laughs) add to that is also keep that mentality in on dating apps, because even though I will never say like, this is a hookup app, that's a this app. There are certain apps that are more primed, like you can go to a Christian dating app that is going to have people who will, you'll already have that in common and you'll start on that level and then do everything Emily said and you're going to be just fine. A <laughs> uh, couple more oh. questions. This one came to us in an Instagram message from Carlos. He says, I met a girl that I'm really attracted to, but she's a bad kisser. What can I do? Can you salvage a bad kisser? I believe you can. This is an unpopular opinion. I can't tell you how many relationships have ended and people have been discarded because they had a bad kiss. And I said that that's just, this person doesn't mean they're, who says good? Who says bad? Like kiss. I mean, we all get to decide. We might all kiss the same person. I might think they're a great kisser and Demona, you might think they're a bad kisser. So I think that that's a great place to work. You could work with someone on that. But first, let's just say, the first date or the first time you kiss, maybe they were nervous. Maybe they were trying too hard to go along with what you wanted and they got kind of fumbled up and they were sort of nervous. And, and I think kissing, if you're with someone, you can say, you know what? I want to show you, like, let's do something here. I'm going to show you how I want to be kissed. And then maybe you could show me how you'd like to be kissed and we can sort of, you know, do an amalgamation of that. Or sometimes we could take a deep breath and slow down and say, let's try that again. Kind of point out that maybe it's awkward. And, you know, I just think that you can reset. I just don't think that we should just end something. If everything else is great but the kissing, it's kind of like dancing. So every time you're with a new partner, it's a new time to figure out how to kiss. And I've had friends, we get into this all the time, like, you're wrong. That's my one limit litmus test. Emily, if someone doesn't kiss right, they're gone. And I've just, I just know it's another thing that you can work on. I wouldn't discard someone because of kissing poorly one time or two times. Yeah, I agree with you. And I also hear this a lot, Emily, around sex now. I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, I have to have sex on the first date. And if it's not good the first time, like it's not going to happen. And yeah, I totally, totally disagree. Um, I, 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 I disagree. I feel like if sex isn't good the first time, it's like, everyone's nervous probably. It's the first time. Maybe you just got a relationship and you're having sex the same way your last partner wanted to have sex. I just don't think it's grounds for dismissal. I think it's grounds for a really excellent conversation about your sex life. It is, if you've gotten naked with someone, you should already be talking about your sex life. Mm -hmm. You could just say, next time, like, uh, like, let's say everything's great, 
but it, the sex wasn't great, but you loved this person, wasn't, you didn't love them yet, I hope. We're not throwing the L word around if you just slept with someone the first time. Then you can go to dinner. You can say, you know what? I don't know about you, but I'm kind of trying to talk about sex more. I haven't really done it before because, again, I understand that most people don't talk about sex, even in long-term relationships. And say, you know, I would love to know, would you be open to talking about it? So what did you love about our sex? What, what turned you on in the bedroom? Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of great tools on my website, too. I have, like, the yes, no, maybe list and talking about your turn-ons. I have just tools for people to kind of figure it out. But I think that it's something like if you assume that most people you're with want to be a great lover, they want to be a great lover. You, They want to be the best you've ever had and they want to be great in the bedroom that why don't we just, you know, kind of take a moment and figure out what you both need. Because I can tell you, most people don't really know how to read people's cues when they're together. They're just doing what they think you like. I don't think they're going, I'm going to really mess this up right now. (laughs) So I want to just, no, we're all trying the best we can. And someone's probably bad in bed, air quotes, because they just, no one's ever talked about it. No one's ever shared feedback. And if we can all just realize it, like talking about sex should be part of being a great lover. And if you haven't talked about it, I don't think you have grounds for dismissal. Well, last question. Speaking of talking about it, uh, we got a message from a listener named James who says, would it be bad to tell my partner I love her for the first time during sex? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't want to say, I think you could, but I would follow it up after and say, you know, hey, I just said I love you and I really mean it. It wasn't just like in the throes of passion, right? Because I think I've also heard the opposite, like, oops, I said I love you during sex and I didn't mean it. I've heard people say that as well. I don't know. I still think that there's a lot of weight played on the first time you say I love you and maybe do it when you're not in the throes of passion. But again, I'm not going to judge you on that. I think there's nothing that's, that's also really romantic too. So I think we all get to decide. Be sure to follow Emily on Instagram at Sex with Emily and pre-order her upcoming book, Smart Sex, How to Boost Your Sex IQ and Own Your Pleasure by visiting sexwithemily.com slash book. The links will be in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed episode 450 of Dates and Mates. And if you have a question and you want to be a part of Dear Demona, the DMs are open at Demona Hoffman on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send me a text, a carrier pigeon, a voice memo. I love to hear your voice. All that is available for you on the socials or give me a call at 424-246-6255. With it being Valentine's Day, I am out and about. If you have not yet seen the Drew Barrymore show. Today, we have a really special episode where I'm on a panel with Dr. Ruth, the one and only, the only person that I am taller than in the world. (laughs) She is amazing. She is so lively, 94 years old. And let me tell you something, she's still got it. And she joins me, Matthew Hussey, Raina and Ashley, the hosts of the Girls Gotta Eat podcast, and of course, Drew and Ross for this special episode. I'm on the show all the time, but this one, man, this one was really special. So check your local listings to see where you can catch that or check that out at thedrewbarrymoreshow.com. We'll be back next Tuesday with authors Anna Burt and Kitty Winks to talk about their new book, The Little Book of Ick, and how the ick is linked to your intuition and how you can use ick to get over an X. And if you don't know what I'm talking about with the ick, then I guess you better make sure you're subscribed to Dates and Mates and that you leave us a cute little review so that we know what kind of episodes you want to hear more of in the future. 
I'm so grateful for you spending your Valentine's Day or Valentine's week with me. Until next week, I wish you happy dating.